Um, I'm going to get into the message for today now. We're going to be looking at John chapter 11. Uh, last week, Pastor Mark, um, you know, spoke on a different topic. So we're going back into our series on John this morning. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Now, I know that's a lot of verses, but as I was thinking about this passage, and it's about Jesus bringing Lazarus back to life, which is what the entire passage is about, it was just hard for me to kind of talk about some of that without actually getting to the part about Lazarus being raised. So I'm going to go through all 44 verses of this, but I I think you'll find that it flies by. So it says this, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So let me just stop there for a moment. What John is referring to here about Mary anointing Jesus' feet is something that we will see in the next chapter, in chapter 12. So he's alluding to that. This is the same Mary, but we won't see that until chapter 12. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, I'm not going to focus on this, but just to not leave you puzzled, if you're wondering what Jesus is talking about here with 12 hours in a day and the light and the darkness, I think what Jesus is really saying here, remember the context is his disciples are like, you want to go back up to Jerusalem? They were just trying to kill you there. That's dangerous. Why do you want to go back up to Jerusalem? What Jesus is saying here Hey, if anybody walks in the light of the day, the 12 hours of the day of sunlight, he doesn't stumble. What he's saying, I believe, is that, look, you don't need to be afraid. I am walking in the will of God, and as long as I am walking in the will of God, I cannot die before my appointed time. I cannot. As long as it is day, we will be doing the works of God. Night is coming. He will go to the cross when darkness comes and and crucifies Jesus. But until his hour comes, until it is according to the plan of God the Father, nobody can touch him. Nobody can touch him. Don't worry. As long as it is day, you do not need to be afraid. Let's go. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Man, this Thomas. Remember Thomas, doubting Thomas? I'm not going to believe until I put my finger in in his hands and in his side, this same Thomas. Now he's saying, let us go that we may die with him. What a downer, right, this guy Thomas? But Actually, I think he gets a bad rap because, look, he's like, you know, maybe he thinks they're going to die, but he's willing to go with Jesus. He's willing to be martyred, right? He's willing to die with Jesus. So I think Thomas, 
He shows up pretty good here. He looks pretty good here. He, he gets a bad rap, but he had faith. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of God. This, this passage is very, very significant for multiple reasons, one of them being what I mentioned last two weeks ago, that, that in chapter 11 begins the, the final chapter of Jesus heading to the cross. Um, we've seen in John chapters 1 through 10, again and again and again, the Jews trying to arrest Jesus, trying to, cruci- trying to have him killed, trying to do all these different things, but they never could. Why? Because Jesus kept saying, my time has not yet come. It is still daylight, 12 hours of the day. No one can stop me. No one can arrest me. No one can kill me until it is the will of the Father, until my hour has come. Here in chapter 11, we see the beginning 
of the coming of the hour of Jesus. Jesus here, through the raising of Lazarus from the dead, sets into motion a series of events where where the religious leaders are really, really trying to kill him now, and and it leads to his eventual crucifixion. This is the, the beginning of the final movement of the book of John, where Jesus begins moving to the cross. Now, we're only halfway through the book, so there's still a lot to go here, but, but it's really significant for that reason. Um, and, and when I look at this passage, I think one of the primary things, one of the main issues that I see in this passage can be summed up really well in these verses here, in verses 35 down through 37. Let me read this again. This, so, so Jesus is there in front of Lazarus's tomb, and it says, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, <clears throat> excuse me, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I think think this, for me, sums up the the conflict and what is happening here in this passage. And and it's, it's a question that is really relevant for us. If you are a Christian, it is very relevant for you. And and this question here that we see, see how he loved him? Jesus loved this man, Lazarus, so much, but if he loved him, couldn't he, who opened the eyes of the blind, also have prevented him from dying? This is a really relevant question. And and it's a question that maybe you have asked before, and I I would phrase it like this. God, if you love me, If you love me, and that's what the Bible says, why would you let this happen in my life? Because you're God. You could have stopped it. My situation could be different. You love me. God so loved the world, he gave his only son for me. You love me so much that you sent your son to the cross. But if that's true, you could have prevented Lazarus from dying, you could have prevented that from happening to me or my family or my health or my job. If you love me, why would you let this happen? This is a very real question. And it is, it's so important because if the love of God for us, his children, is a defining feature of our relationship with God to To have things happen where that is questioned or thrown into doubt can be very earth-shattering in terms of our relationship with God, can it not? Have Have you ever been disappointed with God? Have you ever questioned his love for you? That's the question that these Jews, these friends of Mary and Martha, and probably Mary and Martha themselves, were asking. If you love us, why would this happen? We see this all the time in our lives. Just just two months ago, Pastor Eddie Kim passed away. Pastor Eddie Kim moved his family, him, men, their kids, out to Philadelphia to plant Canvas City Church. They'd only been there a couple of years with this new church that needs them, that needs him. And then he's diagnosed with late-stage stomach cancer. And he's 
I don't, even, I don't think he's 60 yet. He was in his late 50s, and he passed away. A faithful servant of God, a man who was serving God with, with all of his heart, who loved the Lord, who moved his family to another city from, from Southern California. And hey, people don't leave Southern California, right? You know what I mean? They don't leave. So they love it there. I like it northern better, but they love it down there. He moved from there to Philadelphia. Not, nothing wrong with Philadelphia, but I'm from New York, and that's, another, that's a whole other relationship. What about that, God? Why? Why would you let that happen to this man who loves you? Why would you let that happen to his family? They're faithful. He was serving you. I, I, I remember when I was... You know, one of the most difficult weekends in my life was when I was in the hospital in New York uh, because my father was dying from late-stage lung cancer, and we're in the hospital, and it was probably his last few days, maybe his last, last couple of days, actually. It was his last couple of days. And I was there, my brother was there, my mom was there, and it was, it was an emotional, agonizing, difficult time seeing him slowly die before our eyes, seeing him, you know, not be able to have bowel movements anymore, to see his stomach become distended and bloated, to see dysentery begin to set in. To, it, was, it, was, it was so hard. It was such an emotional time. And I remember we're in the hospital there. It was a Friday. And I get a phone call. It was my uncle calling me, my mom's brother. And so I, I, I go out of the room to take the phone call, and he tells me, he, he knew we were in the hospital. He knew my father was dying. And he said to me, he said, Ulysses, I have to tell you something. I said, what is it? He said, your grandfather just passed away. Your mom's, your mom's dad, your maternal grandfather. He had been in the hospital. And he didn't know what to do. He didn't know if he should tell her because she's in the room watching her husband die, my father die. And he said, Ulysses, you, you know, you're the oldest son. You decide what to do. And um, I hung up the phone, and I remember I walked into the stairwell of the hospital, and I remember I was, I was upset at God. I was like, God, why? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? My, my father ended up dying on Monday. One weekend? That not even just for me, but for my mom? She's watching her husband die, and her dad just died. What, 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 what kind of timing is this, God? Why would you let this happen? I remember feeling upset about that. Maybe you've had moments in your life where you've said, God, I'm, a, I'm your child. If I'm your child, why? Why would you let me get laid off or lose my job and, like this? <clears throat> God, I'm your child. But, but me and my, my spouse, we've been trying to have a child for years and have been unable to get pregnant. God, don't you love us or care about us? You know, I, if any of you have ever tried to get pregnant, and you know how, how difficult it can be, how emotionally wrenching it can be if even after one or two months you don't get a positive pregnancy test. I can only imagine for years what that would be like. Have you ever said, God, I'm your child, but why do I have to deal with health issues that most people my age don't even need to think about. Don't you love me? You ever, you ever feel that tension? Could not he who loves me 
also prevented this from happening in my life. If you've never felt that tension before in your life, you probably will one day because we live in a fallen and broken world. You know, in verses 5 and 6, it doesn't make things any better here. Jesus, it seems like he deliberately exacerbates this issue. It says here, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. But then it says, so, therefore, he rushed over and healed Lazarus so that he didn't die. What does it say? It says, so, he loved them. So what did he do? When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus is not making this any easier for us here. What kind of love is this? What kind of love is this? How do we reconcile God's love for us with some of the difficult, painful things that we experience in this life? Well, I think from this passage, the question we need to ask is this, and what I want us to explore is this. How does God love us? What does it mean? What does it mean that God loves you, that God loves me? Is it the same as the world's definition of love? Is it what we see in Korean dramas? Like, what is it? When, is, when, when God loves us, how does he love us? What does it mean that he loves us? I want us to look at two main things here, two things. The first is this. Jesus says here, when he heard about Lazarus' illness, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He's saying, Lazarus' death has a purpose. It's not just that he's going to die, and he's going to be gone, and that's it. There is a purpose to his death. What is the purpose of his death? So that God will be glorified. Jesus is going to go, and he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and that is going to bring glory to him and bring glory to God. There is a purpose to his death. <clears throat> this reminds us, I'm sure, of chapter 9. When the disciples saw that man who was born blind, and they said, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And what did Jesus say? He said, neither. He said, neither. He was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Similar to that. Lazarus died. Jesus let him die. Jesus remained where he was two days so that when he went and he raised them from the dead, it would bring incredible glory to God, and the people would see the glory of God, and that they would be touched and that it would be changed through this experience of the glory of God. And raising Lazarus was glorious, friends. It was incredibly glorious. Because Lazarus had been in the tomb. He had been dead for four days. Back in those days, when, a, when an Israelite, when a Jew died, you buried them right away. They did not embalm them like the Egyptians or things like that. They just buried them right away because the body would begin to decompose. There was this belief that kind of floated around that during the first three days of death, that the spirit of the person hovered over the body of the person. And that the spirit wanted to go back into the body. It wanted to return. 
So, so that there was, I think in their mind, more of a chance that the person could be resuscitated somehow, that somehow the person could come alive again, that if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in the first three days. I think this is why Jesus showed up on the fourth day after Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Jesus says to the disciples, Lazarus died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Friends, Jesus had raised people from the dead before, but those people had all just died. This is the first time This is the only time that Jesus raised somebody from the dead who was already undergoing physical decomposition in the grave. What is God trying to tell us here? How did Jesus show his love to Mary and Martha and to all of us here? He showed them love by showing them the glory of God. He showed them love by showing them more of himself. More of himself. Because when they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, they would come to understand that Jesus is the resurrection. He is the life. Wow, who are you? That you can even raise the dead. They came to see more of God. They came to see more of who he is, more of his nature. They came to understand him more. Jesus loved them by showing them more of himself. Friends, God doesn't love us. The the main criterion of God's love is not, well, if God loves me, he will help me to be very healthy. He will keep me healthy. He won't let me get sick. Or if God loves me so much, he will help me to be wealthy and financially secure. If God loves me, then he will help my career to go smoothly and my life to go smoothly overall. And I'll find that special someone and have kids and all these different things, whatever it is you're dreaming about. That's the measure of God's love. No, God loves us by showing us more of him. That is love. He shows us more of who he is. Later in this book, in chapter 17, Jesus tells the disciples, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What does Jesus say eternal life is? When we think about heaven, what do we think it is? Jesus says it is about knowing God and knowing him more and more and more. That's what heaven is. That's what the joy of eternity is. It's not like, when I think about, you know, I know some people think about heaven, they think about Raphael's painting like this. You know this painting? They're like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do up there? Eternity? For real? Forever? How does that work? Man, are we going to get bored? No, we're not going to get bored. We're not going to get bored. Jesus said in chapter 14, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. He will show, look, what does it mean to be loved by, what does God do if he loves you, if the Father loves you, if Jesus loves you? He shows more of himself to you. That's how he loves you. 
John Piper, he, he described heaven like this as an illustration. He said, heaven is like climbing a mountain, and the mountain is the glory of God. And as you're going up this mountain, you, you're trying to get to the summit and you're to see more of the glory and the grandeur of God. And when you get to that summit, you're like, whoa, you know, amazing. I meant to do more like, oh, like that. And you see the glory and the beauty of God. But then when you get to that mountaintop, when you get to that peak, you look and you notice there's another mountain behind it, even higher, even grander. And then you start climbing that mountain. You see more of the glory of God, more of the beauty of God. And when you get to the top of that mountain, you see another one for eternity. Because God is an infinite God. We will never exhaust his glory. We will never get bored. We are finite creatures who will get to experience the infinite glory of God more and more and more throughout eternity. That's what heaven is. That's what eternity is, knowing God, knowing him more, knowing him better. If he loves you, he shows himself to you. Friends, do not measure the love of God for you by how smoothly your life is going by worldly standards. Do not measure it by the size of your 401k. Do not measure it by the stock market. Do not measure it by your health. Do not measure it by your title at your job. Do not measure it by how it's going according to your 10-year plan. Measure it by how much of God you know, how much God reveals himself to you. Because those whom he loves, he shows more of himself to. This is why Paul, when he pleaded with God three times, take away this thorn from my flesh, that, that sickness or disability or illness, whatever it was that he had, God said, no. Why? So that you can know that my grace is sufficient for you. So that you can know that I am an all-sufficient God, and that if you have me, you have enough, that my strength is enough to help you get through no matter how difficult this thorn in your side is. He wanted Paul to know more of him as Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. This is why I think Abraham and Sarah, even though God promised them that they would have a child, the two of them, but they didn't have a child until Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90. They were well past the age of childbearing. Could you imagine how difficult that must be? All those years of disappointment in getting pregnant, in trying to have a child, wondering, does God love them? Does God care about them? Why? So that they could know that Isaac truly is the child of promise, that God keeps his word, that God is a God who can take bodies that have fallen apart already and that there's no way they could still reproduce and God can keep his promise through bodies that are as good as dead. He wanted them to know him in this way. It's like, it's like God looks at you and says, my child, I, I, I want to take your eyes, your gaze off of the things of this world. I want you to know that this world cannot save you. Money cannot save you. Good health cannot save you. And I want you to take your gaze and I want you to fix it on me because I want you to know that I can save you. I am your savior. I am the lover of your soul. I am your sufficiency. That's love. That's what God wants to show us. And sometimes it may mean letting pain persist in our lives. Sometimes it means that God waits. Not just two days, but maybe two months, maybe two years, 
maybe 20 years. God does that so he can show more of himself to us. Lazarus died twice, (laughs) two times. And if you asked him, Lazarus, was it worth it? Most people only have to die once. You had to die twice. Was it worth it? I think he would say, absolutely, because I got to see God in a way that I never would have seen if I just died and been gone. Is it worth it? It is worth it. Is it worth sometimes illness or disability or pain? Yes, it is. If it helps you to see that God is enough, if it makes heaven more real and desirable to you, Is it worth being persecuted or mocked for the name of Jesus? Yes, it is. If it means that you get to experience more more what it means to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. If we can see more of God, it is worth it. God loves us. And those whom he loves, he reveals more of himself too. Here's the second thing here. It says here that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. The second thing is this. You know, when when Mary was weeping, And the Jews that were with her were weeping. They were crying out of sadness because of Lazarus' death, because Lazarus was gone. When Jesus sees this, it says in verse 33 that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I think that's probably a pretty tame translation of this word that they translate deeply moved. In the Greek, you don't need to know the Greek, but the word is embremaamai, embremaamai. This is a rare word. It's the only time it shows up in John here. It shows up a few other times in Matthew, um, in the Gospels, other Gospels, but it doesn't just mean moved. There is an element of anger, of indignation in it as well. It has its root in the snorting of horses. You know, like if you're, if you've ever been around a horse and it goes to you like this, what does that mean? You're like, whoa, you back away from that horse, right? If a horse snorts at you, it's not a friendly thing. At least that's what I assume. That's what I see on TV. It's, it's like, it's not happy at whatever you're doing. That's the root of this word. It's connected to that. This is why D.A. Carson, the theologian, he translates this as he was outraged in spirit and troubled. Not just deeply moved, he was outraged in spirit and troubled. Also, when it says that Jesus wept there, the word for weeping there is actually different from Mary's weeping and the weeping of the Jews. Jesus, their weeping was was crying because of sadness. Jesus' weeping was because of sadness, but it also has an element of rage, of pain, of anger, 
in it as well. Like the verb embramaamai. There's something going on there. What's happening here? Is it just that Jesus is crying because he's sad? There's probably more to it than that. There are many different interpretations at what's going on here. You can imagine, right? Jesus wept. Like, that's a huge thing. What is going on here? What, what, is, what, is, what are we to take away from that? There are some people who say that Jesus, he was weeping and he was angry and indignant because of sin and sickness and death and all the pain that it causes our world and the pain that it caused Mary and Martha and the other Jews that were around because of Lazarus' death. He was angry and upset and emotional because of sin and sickness and death and how broken the world was because of it. Some people say that Jesus was indignant because the people who were weeping around him, they were weeping like people who don't have hope. They're weeping. It, and, 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 and he was indignant because he was there. Even though he was there in their midst, the, the Messiah, the one who, who heals and does all these amazing things, yet they were weeping in front of him like those who have no hope. And Jesus is like, why are you crying like those without hope? And then there are those who say he was also weeping because of his love for Lazarus and Mary and Martha because of sadness within his heart. The Jews said, see how he loved him. I don't think they were wrong. I think there is an aspect of that mixed in together here as well. I think it is all of these things wrapped up together, that Jesus is there and he is weeping and he is angry and he is indignant because of sin and the pain it causes to see people also weeping without any hope and because of what happened to his friend Lazarus and, and the pain in his friends Mary and Martha. I think it was all of these things wrapped up together in Jesus. Some people object and they say, you know, Jesus couldn't have been crying out of sadness for Lazarus because he knew he was about to raise him from the dead. I I would disagree with that. I think that oversimplifies the emotional nature and makeup of our Lord. Um, it's like, have you ever watched a sad movie again and you still cried? You know, have you ever, like, you know, for the fifth time and you're still crying? Some of you, you watch it to cry. You know what I mean? Over and over again. It's like, Why? You know what happens. You know they get back together again. You know, you know, he donates his lung to her and, you know, whatever it is, and she survives and he doesn't. That's sad. But you know, you know what happens in the end. Why are you crying? Because you're a human being. You're connecting with the emotions and what's going on and the pain of the people that you're, you're seeing, that you're watching in this, and it moves you. That's why, even though you know the end from the beginning of the movie. And we are made in the image of God. We're made in his image. A God with complex emotions. But I don't think our God is a robot. I think God is moved. And we can see the emotions within Jesus, the God-man, here. As he is sad and indignant and angry, all mixed together. 
William Barclay, the pastor theologian, he said this about this passage. To any Greek reading this, and we must remember that it was written for Greeks, this would be a staggering and incredible picture. John had written his whole gospel on the theme that in Jesus we see the mind of God. To the Greeks, the primary characteristic of God was what they called apatheia, which means total inability to feel any emotion whatsoever, where we get our word apathy from. How did the Greeks come to attribute such a characteristic to God? They argued like this. If we can feel sorrow or joy, gladness or grief, it means that someone can have an effect upon us. Now, if a person has an effect upon us, it means that for the moment, that person has power over us. No one can have any power over God. And this must mean that God is essentially incapable of feeling any emotion whatsoever. The Greeks believed in an isolated, passionless, and compassionless God. What a different picture Jesus gave. He showed us a God whose heart is wrung with anguish for the anguish of his people. The greatest thing that Jesus did was to bring us the news of a God who cares. Friends, when we look at Jesus here, when we look at the Bible, when we consider Psalm 34, verse 18, it says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. We don't have a God who, you know, it's, it's, it's both of these things. You know, if we only had part one, you know, it, that's a God who, who may come along and say, man, you're going through cancer? My goodness, your child just died? You just lost your job and all of your money? That's really tough. But you know what? At the end of the day, it's for your good. You will grow through this. You will become more like Christ. You will see how I'm a provider. I'm a healer. All these things. You will see all of this. So buck up, young lad, and, and suck it up, and, and keep going, and I'll see you on the other side in heaven. Our, that's, that's not just who our God is. That's true. That even in the midst of such pain and brokenness, God can use those things, that pain and that brokenness, to reveal more of himself to us. Because he loves us, he wants to show himself to us, even in the midst of our pain and our brokenness. There can be opportunities for redemption and for transformation. But this God also comes alongside of us in the midst of our pain, and he weeps with us. He experiences our brokenness. Jesus was made in the flesh and experienced everything, was tempted in every way that we are. Jesus himself wept because of the pain that we are experiencing, that our world is going through. Truly, God is near to the brokenhearted. Friends, today, my encouragement to you, my challenge to you would be to come to the Lord and ask him, God, you know, whatever you're going through, if you're going through hardship or pain this morning, that your prayer would be, God, show yourself more to me through this. Help me not just to go through this, but to grow through this. Help me through what I'm going through right now in some way to see you more clearly, to see who you are, that you are a savior 
that I can trust you, that you are provider, that you are more than enough, that you are sufficient for me, whatever it is that you're going through, help me, God, to give me contentment so that I can know that I don't need these things, that even if these things don't change in my life, I have everything. I am rich in Christ. God, help me to see that in the midst of my pain and my suffering this morning. And also, God, help me to know that you are near. Sit with me in my ashes. Help me to know that you are near and that you are near to the brokenhearted, that you are not indifferent to my pain or my suffering, but that it moves the heart of God. Let's pray together. I'll invite the worship team up at this time.